0: Your host is in the trenches. He's a real estate attorney, financial analyst, and mobile home park investor and operator. Now, let's turn it over to Ferd Neiman.
1: Welcome back, Mobile Home Park Nation. Ferd Neiman here again today with another episode of the Mobile Home Park Lawyer Podcast. Today is the first of a number of these panel discussions we're going to launch into. Today's panel is on raising funds, raising capital. I've got with me four guys. They've been on my podcast before. You probably know them. They're stars in the industry. They're immensely successful at raising capital and operations in Mobile Home Park. So Really a, a treasure trove of information here today. Uh, I, I joked before this that we're, this is an expensive meeting because the guys' effective hourly rate here is uh, it's pretty intense. But we're going to share that knowledge today with everybody else for free. Uh, in, in the order of my screen, so no, no priority order, but in the order of my screen, i will introduce Rhett Trees with Seneca Capital, Sam Hales of Saratoga, Jeff Cook with Cook Properties, and Daniel Weisfield with Three Pillars. Thanks, guys, for coming on. Thanks for having us, Bert. Yeah, well, maybe you guys, maybe start with you, Rhett, just to give a quick uh, background bio. So if people that don't know you can uh, get to know you a little bit more.
2: Always great to see you, my friend. Thanks for having all of us on here. Um, I'm a disciple of all of my co-guests today, and I'm so proud to share the stage with them. Um, I'm the founder and CEO of Seneca Capital Partners. We started in March of 2017. Uh, immediately prior to that, I was a partner at a private equity firm called Caddis Capital. We had 12 mobile home park funds sold the last fund to Blackstone and uh, a, an additional buyer group. Um, and I started Seneca. So we started with a pretty simple premise, do the right thing with the right people for the right reasons. And we've been rewarded for that. We've launched three funds um, during that short period of time. Uh, fund three is going to close on 1231. Um, it was a $50 million cover vehicle, will likely end up somewhere between 75 and hundred of equity um after that it'd be about 225 million in that fund of assets under management and that will put Seneca as uh, a three fund portfolio just shy of a half a billion
1: Wow, impressive Sam that's tough to beat nothing yeah I was gonna say you make me me follow that Uh, I look like that's why yeah that's why I'm not (laughs) gonna give you my portfolio size (laughs) yeah Yeah. (laughs) what are we doing here
3: uh yeah so Sam Hales with Saratoga Group uh Rhett and I met, I think it's been two years ago, Rhett, and, and I was kind of just getting going in the industry. And anyway, um, it's been a fun ride. Saratoga Group, at the end of the month, will close. Uh, we'll be over 5,000 pads in our, in our portfolio. We've basically done in three years. I mean, a little a little longer than that. Um, and we're focused on value-add communities, mostly in the Southeast. And then I call it like the lower Midwest you know, from Kansas down to Texas and Arkansas, places like that. And uh, building a team, we've got a a new office in Knoxville, Tennessee. I'm actually just went under contract for a home in Knoxville, be moving there before the end of the year. And um, yeah, just really happy to be on this panel and, and appreciate being part of this.
1: Thanks, Sam. Jeff, how about you?
4: Hey, my name is uh, Jeff Cook. I'm the founder and CEO of uh, Cook Properties. And uh, Ferd, thanks for, for having us all on. It's, it is quite an honor to, to be uh, on this discussion here with uh, with all you gentlemen. Um, I started off in, in real estate back in '97. Uh, bought my first mar- mobile home park in 2008. Um, started uh, raising money about five about five years ago. Um, just uh, learned a lot from from the gentlemen here on the on the uh, discussion. Um, so far, where we've raised about $50 million, um, we currently have a portfolio under contract where we're looking to raise another 45, so that put us up to about $100 and um, in, in just shy of uh, five years. So again, happy to be on the, on the discussion and uh, look forward to exchanging some good ideas.
1: Thanks, Jeff.
5: And I'm Daniel Weisfield. I'm the co-founder of Three Pillar Communities. Um, I'm a third-generation mobile home park investor. My grandfather immigrated to the United States, worked fixing wrecked cars in his backyard, and he saved up enough money to buy a mobile home park about 40 years ago. Um, so actually, as a kid, I'd help him with the mobile home parks, you know, mowing lawns, painting fences. Fast forward 30 years, I decided to go into the industry. I launched my company in 2017, um, you know. My family were mom and pop, so that I didn't learn a lot from them about things like capital raising or operations. I figured that out over the past four years, and we've grown now to around 4,000 pads in seven states, and we're vertically integrated with around 60 employees, creating value for our residents and our investors.
1: All right, guys, great stuff. Well, excited to jump into it, maybe to get us going. Uh, Tell us a little bit about your your first capital raise your most recent capital raise, or maybe your biggest surprise. You know, I'm I'm here today asking questions, but I'm a student of your guys as well. I've done some of this stuff myself, but not to the scale you guys have. So I'm I'm here selfishly to listen and learn. Uh, and then take that take really good notes and then compete and, and, and get as big as Rhett one day and, and so on. But uh, no guys, can I take
5: this one? Can I take <laughs> yeah. this question I, I think I will take the cake for the most pathetic first capital raise. <laughs> I
4: don't if know. You've got
5: any, if you, no, really, I, I we'll all compete, but if you've got any listeners out there for, who are trying to figure out how to capitalize their first deal, I, I think I got you guys all beat. Um, my, my business partner, his wife crashed her car, and she needed a new car, and he's a very thrifty person, and he wanted to buy a used car from a police auction website. So he was cruising the police auction websites, and he sees you know Toyota Camry, Honda Civic, mobile home park, <coughs> 19 lots in Horseheads, New York, which is Jeff Cook's backyard, you know the Elmira market, not a growth market. And the owner was a creep and a scumbag. It didn't pay his taxes, it didn't pay anything else. So the county took it back and they were auctioning it off. And we won the online auction for like 90,000 bucks for 19 units, including park owned homes. And we said, oh crap, we won the auction. Where are we gonna get 90,000 bucks? We (laughs) we hadn't thought that far ahead. So where do you get 90,000 bucks when you're just starting out in business? we went to, our best friends, the people we grew up with, our cousins, and we said, hey, who's got $5,000 to pitch in? Who's got $5,000 sitting in a checking account? Take a risk on us. We've never done this before. No, we do not know what we're doing, but we'll do our best. We'll figure it out as we go. And so we bought this really neglected property in upstate New York with a bunch of $5,000 checks and turned it around.
1: Nice. That sounds like a securities violation, but luckily we're not recording. (laughs) (laughs) Well,
5: (laughs) it was our chance to learn, it was our chance to learn
1: securities law,
5: right? What is an LLC, right? And how do you do it? We didn't quite do a totally proper private placement memorandum, but it was how we started to learn.
1: That's great. What about the rest of you guys, Sam, Jeff, Rhett?
4: Mine was uh, somewhat similar to to, to Daniel. Um, We had some properties go under contract. They weren't even parks, actually. Well, one was a park, a couple commercial properties. And we, um, we didn't know what to do because we had four properties going under contract and we didn't have enough cash. And so me and my brother, Brian decided at that point that uh, we would rather have a portion of these properties than have, have none of them at all. And, and that's where it started. And just like Daniel said, it was family and friends and, you know, kind of passing the hat. It was all, uh, all pair pursue and, um, and, and that's how we started with our, our first raise. So it was, um, we still have a lot of those same investors um, right now, so. Yeah, Yeah, you
3: know that. Oh, go ahead, Rat. Go ahead.
2: Sorry, Sam. Uh, I've got a a really good one. If you see that picture right above me, that's our family's fourth-generation farm, and there's a 1977 wilderness travel trailer in that picture that was my first mobile home. Uh, I remember sleeping in um, a lot during the winters down in Florida and Bradenton, Florida, and to tell you how much. I earned on my first mobile home. I paid $0 for it because my grandparents gave it to me and they still had it. Um, but driving it home from Bradenton to our farm in Indiana, my grandma flipped it. So I made 0, and 0 cents on my first travel trailer. That's <laughs> what got me into mobile home park investing because I didn't want it to move. <laughs> so no more travel trailers <laughs> in our portfolio.
3: <laughs>
2: nice.
3: Yeah, I, I was just going to nothing specific but but i've had that experience of getting something under contract multiple times and not knowing where i was going to get the money to close it in a weird way i love it right <laughs> it's like it's like hey this is game time let's go um and and uh i don't know just as i'm thinking about like rewind 10 years or whatever and, and kind of doing your first deal i mean that that's the part you're always concerned about is like Well, hey, I, you know, I've underwritten this looks like a good deal. I, I, I'm pretty sure I can operate it. I have no idea where I'm going to get the money from. Um, but it, when you're under contract and you put your own $5,000 at risk, you figure it out. I mean, that's just been, been my experience. And so I would, to anybody listening, I mean, if you're, if that's your concern, the best way to get over it is go find a property, make sure it makes sense, right? Get it under contract and then start beating the bushes.
1: Yeah. I think that's good advice. I mean, I think that goes back to the, you know, kind of the old burn the boats mentality. You've got it under contract. You got to go at all costs, get the money raised. And, and if you find a good deal, the money should be there. Right. And I think exactly. Jeff, Jeff's kind of analysis is what I think all syndicators, do at, at one point is they say I'd rather have a smaller piece of something than a hundred percent of nothing. And unless you've got really deep pockets or really low ambitions, you're not, you're not going to be able to do it without partners or without some sort of a uh, you know, financial backer. So yep, yep. that's, I think, I think that's, that's wise. So let's talk about if anybody wants to share any cons or maybe pros and cons of investors, I think the obvious pro is you get to expand faster and bigger and you get to diversify some of the risk because you're using other people's money, but there's, there's definitely going to be a con um, associated with it in some instances. Does anybody want to take that one? I mean, I
4: think, I don't know if we all agree, but at least from my end, I mean, there's certain there's administration to it. Um, you know, there's, there's uh, just more people to deal with. Um, but I think, you know, the pros far outweigh the, the cons. Um, you know, for me, it's, it's a, uh, it's very uh, satisfying and very, um, uh, just very beneficial to have investors, like you said, to expand our business, um, but also to share, you know, to share the wealth. Um, you know, we're, we're providing, all of us are providing our returns that are better um, than what can be found in any other asset class. Um, at least on a risk-adjusted risk basis. So again, the, you know, the pros far outweigh the cons.
3: And, and Jeff, to, to your point, I mean, I know that one of the cons can be reporting to investors, and but it's like I tell my CFO, if it was just my money and it's not, I'd want those same reports, right? True. <laughs> and, and actually, my investors might understand some things that they want that I hadn't even thought about. Right? And so we've had some experiences where maybe a more sophisticated investor is asking for something that we hadn't really considered. Like that. That's probably something we should consider. Um, so as we move up the food chain in terms of the sophistication of our investor base, we've had to become more sophisticated ourselves. And I think it's a great thing. I mean, that's right. That's what, that's what we're all trying to do as we grow is is become better and better operators and reporters and stuff like that.
4: Good point.
1: Rhett, Daniel, any, any comments on that or just yeah, in general? I, I you- would add, um, cool. you know,
5: I love having investors, you know, in addition to the capital to grow the business and the sense of satisfaction I get from helping normal people build wealth. Um, I've also gained a lot of business mentors within my investor base. It's, it's a great way I built relationships with some really smart women and men who give me advice on how to run my business. And, and I love that. Yeah. Um, yeah. And on the... And I would just say on the, on the con side quickly, you know, you can run into problems with investors if your interests, your investors are not aligned or if expectations are not aligned. And so I think we've done a lot of work up front to make sure that our investors are aligned with our investment objectives and our timeline. We have a pretty unique model. We're evergreen. We have no plans to sell at any time. We have the prerogative as a GP to refinance or sell whenever we want, but we're not planning on it. We plan on a multi-decade hold, and we make sure we bring in investors who are aligned with
2: I think so that's sorry, that. Ned, I'd love to you
5: hear your, your perspective.
2: Yeah, I agree, guys. But I, the the thing I get questions about more than anything. So I was on a team that sold one 800 PackRats, the second largest mobile self-storage company, the, the biggest competitor to pods in 2009. And I have the unique um, and untrammeled vision of knowing what it's like to be an investor with my family office and to be a sponsor, right? so. I think of what I do every day as what would I want to invest in? And I think that everyone on this panel has done a fantastic job of that, of escalating the um, institutional perception of mobile home parks. Because when we all started, when I got in the business 2011, 2012, man, it was literally past the hat and it was a bunch of guys that you'd want to drink a ton of beer with, but not much else. (laughs) And so, you know, I'm grateful to each of you for doing that. And I have people ask me more than not like, why didn't you just do it with your own money? And that doesn't resonate with me at all because I'd be so bored and I'm an extrovert. I love people and I wouldn't have a platform. And for me to be on this panel with you guys today, you'd ask me like, okay, well, you don't have any investors, so you're not very helpful. Um, And our investors span the gamut from Texas A&M Foundation, who's our anchor in fund two, down to $100,000 for a friends and family investor. And we run that gamut and fund three from a hundred thousand to 19 million. So we've got every bit of investor group, um, and, you know, kind of profile that you can imagine, but that's the reason why I do it. Cause I get up every morning and I have two goals, provide the cleanest, safest, affordable housing to my tenants and to give two bucks back to each of our investors for every dollar they gave us. I mean, it's a really simple life that I live because you can just break it down to that formula.
1: That's great stuff. Now, Red, you, you probably have more than the rest of us. You've had you've got you mentioned big foundations. That what is your what is your view on and maybe others too if you've dealt with this many small investors versus one big one. I know my my first syndication it was it was only 750,000, it was a single one-off deal, but one group brought 500,000 so that was they were a big player. Well, then I felt like, well, I, I kind of owe them a little bit more, and I didn't, they gave them the same return pro rata. But they called, hey, our fund's being audited, so we need to get inside your fund, and I get I'm now getting audited. Like, okay, I'll do it. I'm not hiding anything, but that was a lot more work for me that I didn't sign up for. But I'm like, I'm going to tell this guy no, and that's going to really look like a red flag. So I had to answer to the bigger player in this example, where the other two hundred fifty thousand were friends and family. I mean, I had guys I sent them one hundred eighty five page PPM. He just calls me and says, I'm not gonna read this. Is this a good investment or not? And I was like, I'm kind of on the other side here. I'm your buddy, I'm your lawyer, or I'm a lawyer, I'm a GP on this. And I was like, I can't really answer that. He goes, Ferd, I'm not invested in the deal, I'm invested in you. And if you tell me it's a good deal, he goes, I'm gonna you gotta come pick up the check because I want to look you in the eye when you tell me it's a good deal. And and he did, they gave me 50 grand. It was a big deal, and, and it was that was the the deal worked out really well, and we just refinanced it and gave him back. Uh, over 150, it was 18 months later. So he was pumped. It was a really strong yield on that, but that deal, he was he was the opposite of a big investor. But you know what? 50 was, he'd never written a check that big and he couldn't write one for 60 or for hundred. So I, I, I recognize the con of the small guy, but I also, write, there's a, you know, many hands make light work, but at the same time, somebody can stroke you a $19 million check. It's, it saves some phone calls, you know? Does it, what, are your, what are your guys' opinions on that? I mean, sure, all of us have had small, and then large, and perhaps extremely large um, investors. Jeff, Jeff I'd I love to hear further? from you. Yeah, Jeff, you're in the middle of a big raise right now. I'm curious, what's your preference?
4: Yeah, so we um, so we, we just started a raise for a large portfolio we have under contract. We um, so we did bump our minimum to two hundred fifty, two hundred fifty thousand to try to encourage um, high uh, larger checks. Um, I'm not so sure if it's working or not. Uh, we do get people that ask us, you know, hey, you know, it's a two hundred and fifty minimum, but can we come in lower? And you know, I tell everyone, well, let's you know, take it case by case. Um, we also we started another offering at the same time with a fifty thousand dollar minimum, thinking that that would help to alleviate some of the uh, some of the people that didn't want to come in at the two hundred and fifty level could come in at the at the fifty level. So I'm not sure. We're still trying to we're still trying to sort it out and still you know running through the raise. Um, but. I mean, we, we always have a 50 at a, as a minimum for any of our offerings. Uh, you know, we love our $50,000 invest, investors. We love our $5 million investors. Uh, oftentimes we've seen where our $50,000 investor is just trying to test the waters. And then on the next go around, they're at, they come in at 500. So, um, you know, we do try to treat everyone, uh, everyone the same.
1: Thanks, Jeff. Sam, Daniel, you guys have a comment on that?
3: Well, I, I think we probably all have the experience if, if the check's bigger, you know, the expectations are. And, and sometimes they're going to want maybe some control or whatever. Um, I know we, we've had the experience recently of, of you know, maybe garnering a lot of interest from larger private equity groups and that sort of thing. and And it sounds great, right? I mean, the latest one was they want to give us $150 million. And my first response was, I, I can't spend that i mean i don't have that pipeline i've got a pipeline i don't have that kind of a pipeline mm-hmm. and right and then and then in addition then they're asking for all these other things maybe including some control and that sort of thing um so it, it seems to me like the sweet spot is kind of being in that hundred thousand uh, you know and may, maybe small family offices come in with yeah. with a five million dollar check or whatever but and I think I'm hearing the same thing from Jeff and Red. And that, that's been our experience. That, that's been kind of a good place to play. And, and we get, we get you know, sophisticated investors, but, but they're not asking to, to run our business for us. We feel like we're going to do a better job for everybody if, if we can run it the way that we know how to run. It. So, it.
2: Yeah, we have a unique perspective because we are a registered investment advisor. We're the only one that we know of in the sector which brings an incredible amount of oversight compliance uh, and we're sec registered. So uh, we have FINRA, the state of Colorado, sec, and that's been a a huge blessing for us because we can raise larger checks because of the alliance of interest um, that we have with our underlying clients, mainly family offices. Um, But everyone has to be a qualified client, which means that you have to have 2.1 million or 2.2 now, in personal net worth, um, which brings the threshold up for our investors, uh, much, much higher. So it becomes even more important for us to find more and more sophisticated investors, which again, goes kind of to their favor, the investor favor, because we think are the way that we structure the fund has to be the best that they will see quote unquote market. So, um, that's a forcing factor. I've seen a lot of funds in our world that, you know, get down to like a 50, 50 on profits interest. And that's something I've never invested in and likely wouldn't, but, you know, that's like way different than, than anything we're putting out to the market because we couldn't, the the, the sophisticated investor is so fee sensitive that there's no way we could ever work with that client.
1: That's Jeff, I, or Red. I appreciate you, you saying that. I mean, you obviously have a different, and I think we talked a little bit earlier, uh, maybe before the call, about what each of us have for differentiation. I think one thing to differentiate your group is that RIA and that that level of you know, just a, you know panache of hey, we got this whole this whole system set up. Maybe for the others, what is something that you guys try to do to differentiate? You know, obviously, I know Jeff focused on New York State. You said the blue waters in New York State, something different than a lot of other investors. There's, it's less competition there, and you re- you really mastered. I know Sam, you've moved more and more your portfolio. You're moving your own family, right? You're moving more to the southeast, <clears throat> away from the West Coast. I know Daniel generally West Coast profile is 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 geography the focus. Is it, um, you know, risk appetite? I know we talked too about them, you and know, we'll talk more about reporting and talk more about investor profile and yield. I mean, and Rhett just mentioned splits and, and fees and stuff. Um, and and I've got a little different, may not different like wrong, but different as in a different view, worldview on on that from a GPLP. But maybe uh, maybe Daniel, tell us at first if you would like. What is your differentiator for your investors? And then and then Jeff and Sam will jump to you next.
5: Sure. So. First of all, um, like a lot of you guys, I see myself as a mission-driven operator. And I think that's really important in this space because, as we all know, there are some questionable actors in this space. And for me, just like Rhett said, two-part mission, residents and investors. we got to do both. If I'm not doing both, I don't feel good about myself. So that's number one, that social mission. Um, Number two, we pride ourselves on being nimble and creative and flexible and assessing each deal on its merits, right? And being maybe a little more flexible with some of the bigger institutional guys. So we'll pay a premium for class A parks if we think the deal makes sense. And we buy a lot of kind of class B workforce product and we buy some really rough class C parks and turn them around, right? On septic and well with gravel roads. So we kind of, we play across that risk spectrum and we pride ourselves on being flexible in that way. Um, And thirdly, in terms of geography, we are focused on the Western US. we have a park where manufactured homes routinely sell for $300,000 and up, right? No land underneath it. I'm talking about a 25-year-old mobile home. Um, and we are, you know, uh, and we have other parks where mobile homes sell for $15,000, 20000 That's the low end for us. Um, so we, we we hope and we believe that we're operating in strong markets, and therefore we're getting a fair risk-adjusted return. And our IRRs probably are lower than some of the other guys on this call, and we feel fine about that.
1: Great stuff. Jeff, Jeff, what about you? What's your key differentiator?
4: Uh, We try to differentiate, differentiate ourselves as, um, being operators, mobile home park operators first and, and syndicators second. Um, you know, we, you know, Brian and I, we started, uh, uh, like Daniel, you know, mowing lawns, you know, getting underneath the houses, um, you know, working on the houses, hooking up water lines, uh, fixing things. Um, and, you know, we, we started syndicating, uh, and uh, almost by mistake, you know where we again we're, like I said earlier, where we had a few deals under contract and we wanted to to buy them and we passed the hat to friends and family and um and we were able to raise the money um and then it's just continued to to escalate from there um but again you know first and foremost we're you know we we think of ourselves and we act as operators um and we you know we kind of like what daniel said, you know the mission driven business you know us is is you know we we want to do unto others as them unto us. Um, you know, we're strong, strong, firm believers in karma. And um, I think like Rhett said, we always try to just do the right thing. And, and when we do the right thing, um, things always work out for the best. So.
3: Awesome. For, can I jump in real quick? Yeah,
1: go ahead, Sam.
4: Yeah.
3: So I, I'd say a lot of ways we're probably similar to three pillars. Uh, Daniel and Joel and, and our team have spent a lot of time on the phone kind of going over stuff. And they're kind of doing the same thing on the West Coast that we're doing in the Southeast. So we're passing deals back and forth all the time. Um, so that's one thing that like we we kind of identified early on after looking at some data with regards to the Southeast in terms of you know standard metrics like three-bedroom rents, um, median income, all that sort of stuff. If I look at Grand Rapids, Michigan versus Greenville, South Carolina, all those metrics are pretty much the same, except at least when we were looking at the data, it was over $500 a month for a lot rent in Grand Rapids, and it was less than half of that in Greenville, South Carolina. I'd rather be in Greenville, South Carolina. There's there's more net migration and and, and all those sorts of things. So so we really, really like the Southeast, um, you know, from the Carolinas, Alabama, Tennessee, um, Georgia, northern half of Florida. Um, I think, though, probably for us, the thing that's been the biggest differentiator and and really as I as I reflect back, like I don't think we would have raised nearly as much money if we hadn't have chosen to go into opportunity zones. So we have uh, a, a fund now. Uh, we're, we're about to close it. But Target raise was 30 million. We'll probably close it about 40 million it's an opportunity zone fund so we're only buying mobile home parks in, in ozs but it's created a lot of synergy for us in terms of investors coming into that fund and then and then wanting to kind of do other uh, just standard mobile home park investment with us and and along with that i mean i tell everybody every mobile home park at least the kind we buy should be in an opportunity zone right i mean these are the people that need and the communities that need the investment and so we're really not doing anything different there, but but we have a team. We now have uh, four full time project managers that are just managing all the roads and the and the you know clubhouse renovation and the solar lights and just all the things that we're doing. I mean, there's just so many so many of those projects going on. I think that's a little di- you know most people I talk to in the space are are hoping you know they'll, they'll they'll take on a couple of those projects, but they want a lot of stabilized stuff in the portfolio. And, and we, we kind of have like a couple stabilized things in the portfolio and everything else is projects. Um, so we're, we're pretty happy there.
1: Thanks, Sam. I appreciate that. That's good. And I know you guys that that OZ fund, that was a great idea, right? It brought money in and you did differentiate yourself. That's why I first ran into you and your brother that you guys are doing OZ stuff. And we, we talked about that a while back. That's great. One other thing that, you know, we talked about, how to differentiate from a pro and how to do some reporting and then interest aligns. I want to talk about fees and stuff too, but I'll tell you some, I invested as an LP in a group and how they differentiate, differentiate themselves from the, you, you guys is, they take lots of fees, they mismanage the project, and they do no reporting. So it's, 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 they're really special. Um, there's three, three partners. Um, if I wasn't a lawyer, I'd know, I, I would probably say that who their names are, but I'm not going to. But I'll tell you that they're fighting each other they're suing each other, and I hope they just sell all the stuff so that I get my money back. Um, but seriously, in three and a half years, they've given me no reports. I barely get a K-1. They violate loan covenants. They violate SEC regulations. They violate tax regulations. My interest is like sixty-five thousand dollars, so it's not enough for me to sue and fight the fight. The fight, but somebody else um, who's a judge is suing them because she has a lot more money in the deal. So I'm I'm, I'm kind of riding the coattails of another of another lawyer fighting the fight. But I'm curious for you guys, um, and because of that story, um, which you know, when I started syndicating about three and a half years ago, uh, I decided I was doing monthly reporting. Well, you know, profit and loss balance sheet, trial balance, rent roll, site map, narrative—that um, becomes a lot. You know, you one deal, it's, it's a lot. You two and five and ten, all of a sudden it's like, okay, I gotta go to quarterly. But then I, I also my other groups. If you guys do annually, you guys do periodic. Um, sometimes they, they, I get, I'm in some apartment deals as an LP, or they just give me a a, a brief one page pair, paper with some pictures, but there's no financial docs um i'm curious what you guys do as far as reporting and maybe to, to piggyback on that um do you do you pay the if you well let's just cover that one first i don't want to mix too many topics together so maybe um maybe i'm going in order again on my screen Rhett, sam jeff and daniel just go from there if you, if you don't want to share you guys you just say pass but i'm curious uh, if you if you're willing to share what uh, what you do for reporting
2: yeah it's actually in our docs for we put it in there um we actually had Um, KPMG audits from inception um, with all of our funds at Seneca, which is a huge differentiator for us. Um, You know, all of our big clients love to see that it's less costly than you would think. And um, you know, it's a big deal. Um, Secondarily, we um, send our quarterly investor reports within 60 days of the quarter. And we try to do it about 45 days. And they're really long. I mean, to your point, it takes me weeks to write three separate fund quarterly overviews because I put my heart and soul into it you know like you I want to give our investors what I call GP level access um, to an LP so they can feel like they're an owner but don't have to do the sausage making which is maybe the best part about being a passive owner that you get quarterly checks Um, you know so those kinds of things are very very important to us we get K-1's out by uh, March 15th every year. That's a huge deal to me because I'm an investor. Um, and we provide co- consolidated federal K-1s, so roll-ups. So our investors don't have to go to state by state level. We think that's very important that we do that heavy lift for the investor, present them with one K-1 document that's you know just a pristine document. They can hand to their tax guy and go, here, let's rock and roll.
1: great. Top-notch.
3: And we're sticking to the same order, right, Ferd? So once again, Sam looks like yeah. a chump following. <laughs> like,
4: hey,
3: I want to. I want to be like Rat when I grew up. I'm like taking notes. And I'm like, yeah. oh man, my my investors would also love a consolidated federal K one. <laughs> we haven't given it to them yet, right? So, uh, but we're doing quarterly reports. Uh, we we send out pretty regular emails. Yeah, we'll just do an update. It won't be a part of a big report, but just say, Hey, look, we've just bought this new property in the fund and here's some, another couple exciting updates or whatever. And then we'll pro- probably, about every two weeks, we'll send out just a delinquency report. Um, that we kind of started doing that with COVID because of, um, you know, that was top of mind for us and for, for our investors. So we started doing that. Um, but yeah, we're pretty much quarterly reports. All
1: right. Jeff, what about
4: you? Uh, same thing. We're quarterly, quarterly reports. Um, we are, you know, as our, um, I think Sam may have mentioned it earlier, as our, as our level of investor, um, their sophistication has increased. We, we've had to keep pace. Uh, so right now we do a one page, a one page, uh, a one page uh, email report um, on a quarterly basis. Uh, we are looking to uh, upgrade that. And again, you know, keep, keep pace with our the level of sophistication uh, of our investors. Uh, we are actually rolling out our, uh, an, an investor portal, uh, which we have promised our investors to have in place by the end of the year. And uh, thanks to you guys, we, uh, we decided to go to Juniper Square. Um, again, it was certainly not the cheapest, but um, it's uh, certainly the best. So we're, we're happy with that. We're excited about that. Um, again, which will also help with our, our level of sophistication. So. Um, t- transparency, you know, I think as, 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 as uh, the, as uh, Sam and, uh, and Rhett have mentioned, and I'm sure Daniel's going to say something similar, um, tran- transparency is the best way to go in communication with, with investors. Um, I like, uh, Sam, the, the delinquency uh, report. Uh, we haven't done that unless asked, but that's an interesting uh, concept and something that would uh, provide a lot of security and a lot of uh, transparency to the investor. So good idea.
5: We also do quarterly reports. And the one thing I'd add here is um how much, like Brett, I enjoy sitting and writing the quarterly property narratives. You know, we're sending a PNL and a balance sheet and distributions report, but we're also sending a detailed narrative about what's going on at the property. Um, that's really the time each quarter when I, at my levels of the company, am, am most focused on property performance. It's a really good quarterly cadence for checking in with my operations team and making sure we're hitting the business plan. And um, I always push my team and say, hey, what's the headline here? right? What's the upshot? Tell me in 10, ten words or less, what's, what's the real story of this property for this quarter? Um, and so I, I spent a lot of time with them writing the headline. And that's something that I think I bring the owner's view to do from property by property every quarter.
1: No, that's great to hear. Um, I feel the same way as you, Daniel. It's, it's really just a good time to focus in and, and get your hands on the property and make sure you can articulate it. And as a couple others meant, bring GP level info to the LPs and then you know they'll appreciate that. Um, one thing as, as GPs, you know, we, we, I think we all agree that, 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 you know, dual mission of maximum return for the investors and maximum housing option for the customer, the clients, the, the residents, we can all agree on that. But if we, if we have our conflict of interest hat on it's, it's how much are we getting paid versus the LPs, right? We are supposed to get paid. We provide value in the markets, we provide service. So I'm curious if you guys can talk about, uh, what fees are typical in your funds, and then and then also has that changed over time? Like, I mean, many people, the first deal, maybe is, it's not even fees, it's just hey, I'll kick in some money, you kick in some money, we'll split up the interest. And then maybe then, then there's the one-off syndication of his property a here's the here's the pr- preferred return, or here's the management fee, or here's the asset management fee, or here's the GP split, the LP split. Sometimes there's hurdles, whether it's based on cash flow or intern rate of return. And then I know. Some of you have, you know, open funds or even blind funds. There's send me money. And it's, and then it's that presumably is a little bit different of a fee structure than the first deal when we're passing the hat. So maybe you go, if, we don't have to, if, if you guys, uh, everybody doesn't have to share if they don't want to, but maybe, maybe Daniel, start with you if you want to answer that question. And then we kind of go in reverse order from the last one. Yeah, John, I'm happy Sam, to Brett.
5: open the kimono for sure. Um, <laughs> but we, you know, Rhett said, you know, he'd never... Think of going for a 50% promote. Most of our deals are 50% promote over a cash flow based pref ranging from 5% to 7%, depending on the risk profile of the deal. Um, and I am proud to say that I have some highly sophisticated real estate investors who invest with me on those terms. Right. So my biggest investors are people who made a lot of money in high rise development and whatnot, and they see me as an expert mobile home park operator, and they trust me with their money, and they're happy with the returns. Um, I will also say this has a lot to do with what size check you're going for and how much control you want to have over your business. Um, you know, as we've grown and kind of climbing up the food chain, you know, I, I see some, you know, $50 million assets I'd love to bid on. And I can't really go rent. I'm sure I've tried to bid against you on some of those assets and I can't show up credibly at the table saying, oh, well, I'm going to go syndicate the money. You got to have your big capital partner if you're going to compete on those deals, and so we've, we've talked to a lot of institutions and big funds, and it honestly feels like a different business. Like we've got our syndication business, it's great. And going to do that feels like a different business line with a different set of terms and a really different long-term economics. And we just have not decided to go that route yet.
1: Thanks for sharing, Daniel. Jeff, Sam, you here? you guys want to go next?
3: Yeah, I'll, I'll jump in, Jeff. So to, to Daniel's point, um, there's a scarcity problem in the market, right? So, so there's like the sort of deals, and, and again, I'm probably most familiar with what Daniel does because it's somewhat similar to what we do, just kind of different parts of the country. They do more stabilizing than we do, but there's it's hard to find these deals. Like that is the hardest part of the business, right? And so for, for us, we kind of look at it and say, well, we work really, really hard on our pipeline and every one of those deals is valuable. Um, and and because of that, we'd rather do less deals, but make sure that, you know, they're meeting our thresholds for for return. And and we're the same way. We I mean, we have two hurdles, but you know, we're getting to a 50-50 split. That's that's our whole goal. Um, and, and it means we're probably doing smaller deal sizes and then there's way more work and and there's there's more infill and all this sort of stuff but that's kind of where we see the value. And and like I said, it's hard to find those. Um, But but part of that is we feel like, as we all know, there's there's been so much cap rate compression in our space. I mean, not just our space, but our space probably more than any other space, um, even throughout COVID. And, And what that means is that that value add opportunity, it might cost a little more now but on the back end, when it's stabilized, it's worth so much more than it was three years ago. Um, and so so we're, we really like kind of going after that space. I mean, our average deal is probably, you know, $2 million or something like that. And so we have a lot of those deals and we're buying them one at a time for the most part. Um, but uh, but because of that and because it's so hard to source them, we're, we're you know, yeah, we're, we're doing like a 50-50 split over over our pref.
1: I'm interested too. Do you guys charge? it? Do you pay a different pref based on contribution limit? I just looked at one the other day where it was, I think it was a six pref at fifty thousand, a seven pref if you pay two fifty, and an eight pref if you pay a million. Um, it didn't really change the back end, so it didn't motivate me to go from fifty to two fifty. I was like, well, I'll just put in fifty because there was no there was no particular upside because it was all based on a higher expected IRR on the back end. Um, I'm interested in that too. And maybe Jeff, do you, I'll let you address that one. Do you pay a different preferred return based on the contribution level? And then did did your, just in general, how do you, how do you guys share the fee split or how do you, you know, balance those interests of LPGP?
4: Yeah. So on our last fund that we just closed, we were at a 80, 20 split, um, 80 to the LP 20 to us, um, 8% pref. We felt we had to be aggressive because that was our first big raise, um, it was, it was a, for 65 million in assets, you know, tw- uh, $26 million raise. So we want to make sure that we, we were able to raise, um, raise the money and, and close the fund, um, which we did. Um, so we're, we're, happy with that. Uh, on the current offering, we, um, did get a, a touch more aggressive. We're, uh, offering a 70, 30 split with a, a 7% uh, preferred return. Um, I'm always happy to talk about, uh, you know, higher returns for, for larger checks, um, I, mean, I think you know, with volume comes comes benefits. I mean, let's let's face it. That's that's the uh you know the facts the facts of life and, and reality and in and, and the business world. Um but yeah, so we have to you know, being in New York State, you know, we we feel we have to be a little bit more aggressive on our splits um to incent people to come to New York. Um, you know, we, you know, Brian my brother and myself, we are uh we're, we're experts in mobile home parks, um, in New York state. You know, we've, we grew up here. We were very familiar with the business climate. We're very familiar with the the legislative uh, climate. Um, we're, we're in touch with, uh, you know, people in, in, in the government, um, to, you know, try to have them see things our way. They don't always listen, but, um, but we do, we do try. Um, so again, with some of those increased, uh, business regulations and, in the conditions in New York state, you know, we do have to, uh, yeah, it's all about risk risk adjusted, uh, rewards and risk adjusted returns. So, um, again, we have to offer a little higher, a little higher incentive to, uh, to get people to come to New York state. But.
1: Rhett, anything you want to add?
2: Um, well with my sponsor hat on, you know, I tell people they can look at, um, our investment docs, cause I think they're really clean from a waterfall perspective, it's only three, a three-step waterfall, which I love as an investor. And I've put my investor hat on as a family office investor. You know, when I start to see waterfalls that are, you know, five steps long based on a 10 pref, you know, 15 IRR and then these waterfalls, it's complicated for no reason other than the GP trying to be, um, you know, get into the prep faster, which, you know, is great. I mean, we should all be rewarded for our hard work. I think to Daniel's point, you know, I, I wouldn't, as an investor, I wouldn't invest in a 50-50 with somebody who I didn't know and trust and that I didn't think was going to add value. It's obvious that Daniel's crushing it out there. He's adding a ton of value in the markets that he's participating in have a significant amount of lift, both he and Sam. Um, and so if that, that makes that investment, decision much easier because they have this future um you know stair step with their investment thesis and when you start to pull supplementals and you return capital you know that's that, that can be a compelling uh, investment opportunity you know for me as an investor in the space though um i really like clean waterfalls i think it's the best thing any of us can do and i really like when everyone is para pursue um and so we try to do the same because when, I, when I'm investing in a firm or with someone, to, to your earlier point, I invest in both the jockey and the horse, right? And they both have to be really good for me to invest in them. And when I see somebody else getting a pref different than mine for their, call it institutional investor status, um, it doesn't feel right to me as an investor. And I don't know why I've never been able to put my finger on it. But, you know, I just like when everyone's pair pursue, we're all going down the same path. Everybody knows the clear direction, the thematic approach that we're after, and how to get to the end goal line, which is for everyone to de-risk any investment and to make as much money as possible in the Delta.
1: Well, thanks, Brad. That's an interesting perspective. I, I can I can definitely see where you're coming from there. As an investor, you don't like seeing somebody else get additional money, additional pref, even though you recognize, as Jeff said, that look, money talks and the million's bigger than 50, but um, 50 may be a lot to the, somebody and millions not to somebody else. But So I'm, I'm just curious on yours, um, if I'm going to invest 100,000 in your fund or if your minimum is 250, if I'm going to invest 250 in your fund, how do you reward or penalize, or maybe there isn't any timing I and mean, maybe you're only open and closed for such a small window that everybody's in at the same time um, but also but if not and there's a two three year window of raising capital presumably the person in, at day one had less optics to look at the deal flow and to look at the portfolio than the person that comes in day 365 can already see how the fund performance is is behaving do you have any sort of timeline uh, differentiation as far as penalties or rewards for those invet- those two hypothetical investors
2: We don't personally, um, because our fundraising windows are so short. So first, first close to last close for us is typically, you know, was a couple of months in our last fund and maybe, I don't know, less than six months in this fund likely. So, you know, we don't, we don't treat anyone differently, no matter when they come in, their preferred return starts on their particular closing tranche. So to us that's in their benefit to get in, faster if they choose to at first closing or shortly thereafter, it's in their benefit to do so. But otherwise, you know, we, we treat everyone per pursuit, period.
3: And, and, and for I know you're supposed to be asking the questions, but I'm Rick, Can I ask you another question on that? Cause I'm real curious how you guys do
2: this. Um, it's just, we have, we we've taught the market that we're perpetual. We perpetually acquire, we perpetually, dispose and we perpetually fundraise. So when one fund is out of, out of equity, um, the next fund launches immediately prior to that. Yeah. And, you know, we just raised so quickly. We're, we're so blessed with investors that have been with us a long time. Um, you know, people in the industry, um, new investors that have heard about us through various different ways, um, but we don't solicit, we don't go out and traditionally fundraise. So it's the biggest blessing of the firm is the fact that you know, we have this ability to open a fund and for it to be. Um, almost fulfilled nearly immediately and not have to continually fundraise. And then we do a final close and we encourage everyone to stay in tune and to learn about everything that we're doing in hopes that when we launch the next fund, um, they'll be able to participate in the short window that it's open.
3: Yeah. Cool. Yeah. We could, we kind of do the same thing. I mean, we, ours usually takes about 12 months to fundraise. We try to keep it under 12 and we just, prep starts as soon as the money hits the account. Uh, but yeah, we don't mark up the assets for later investors or anything like that. And I know a lot of people do it, it to me, it's a little complicated. It sounds like we kind of feel the same way. Like we try to keep it simple, right? Because it's like, if it's too complicated, that's just like, there's friction there. Like you could like turn into an argument or whatever. We're just not interested in that. Um, but in, and, and in your case, you guys read, I mean, you're going to be holding these for a few years and then and then liquidating the fund, is that, is that the idea?
2: We've been pretty vocal from day one about launching five funds in five years and selling them simultaneously to a single buyer. Got so it. that's, our, that's our, our thematic approach that our investors seem to really resonate with was okay. that you know, we're, we're gonna do this every year, every year and a half. And you know at, at some period in the future, when the market is right, we will sell all of them simultaneously.
3: Yeah. Yeah. Make, makes sense. Cause, cause Daniel, he, I mean, you guys are kind of doing evergreen, right. Which is, which is a little bit what we're doing. We're like, we tell people, Hey, you're going to have liquidation opportunities as we refinance and supplementals, but like, we don't ever want to sell these because we, we put out a 10 year pro form and, and we're like, year 12. There's some awesome accretive things that we can do right? <laughs> that aren't even on the that don't show up on the 10 year pro form. We're like, we don't ever want to sell these things anyway, but it's a different, it's a different um, take. And so, yeah, we're just trying to figure out, it's like if we, if we kind of roll, cause we're thinking about rolling up some smaller stuff into one platform so we can get some better debt terms. Right. And then keep it evergreen. And then it's like, but then it, again, I like simple. And then, and then it starts sounding a little complicated because how do you, how do you value all that? Do you run a nav calc and bring new money in and, I don't know. I've got more questions than answers. That's, that's,
1: all. that's a that's a great question. That's what I wanted to ask you guys in particular. Is you know if and I know you know some of you guys in particular, you've got different. You started just you or just you and a couple of friends, and now it's a syndication. Now it's a fund. You've got over you. I don't say conflict of interest, but you've got probably one accounting department that's doing accounting for all of those. How is that a wage paid for? You know, if you've got a you know an audit or a you know, tax filing for a particular property, that's easier, right? But how, how, how are you guys divvying up maybe overhead? And, or if you're rolling, are you rolling deals up? As Sam mentioned, you're getting ready to do perhaps how, what's the proper valuation. Obviously, if you bought the deal five years ago, and it's got better occupancy, better NOI, it's worth more, everybody gets it. Um, but if you're the guy valuing it, there's a conflict of interest depending on your splits in each. So obviously there's an appraisal market, but, uh, we all have had, I'm sure, experiences with appraisers that aren't the best as well. So I'm just curious, maybe Daniel or Jeff didn't get to answer that last question. Maybe if you have any comments on that and we circle back to the other guys here as well.
5: I don't have anything very interesting to say. I mean, all of our properties pay the same property management fee to our in-house property management company to cover overhead. And I haven't, I haven't run anything yet in our structure that we needed to peanut butter and spread across different entities and figure out how to do it. So
1: my, my, my answer is pretty boring. It seems, but it's percentage basis, I assume for the same fee, not, not same flat fee. Okay. So a property, a hundred pounds presumably going to have more than 20 pounds. So fair enough. That's how, that's how we've done it too, is a, you know, property management fee. Um, Jeff, you're similar to Daniel.
4: Yeah. Same thing. Our, Our management fees cover our overhead. Great you know, including employee salaries.
1: Yeah, right.
3: I'd say the only twist that we have just because we buy a lot of vacancy is we we do it based on the occupied pads. It's not perfect, but um, that that's what we've come up with just to try to keep it fair. And obviously as, as a property is generating more revenue, they're going to you know, more people are going to take more, more overhead. So we, we think it mirrors reality pretty well, but uh, trying to keep it
2: simple, that's how we do it.
1: All right. Rhett, any feedback well, on that? We've got a fund
2: administrator. We've, we've been with UMB fund services from inception and man, they are incredible. I don't know what we'd do without them. I mean, and, and, and I can't pay anything for control internal control perspectives you know, We have them as um they're our paying entity. Um, and so you know, you have to send us an invoice and it has to have a fund attached to it, so it has to be billed to a particular fund. Um, and so it's really easy from our perspective that way of how we bifurcate and try trifurcate everything now because you know it has to go into a particular bucket, and has to be paid for by each respective fund. So um uh, that's been a blessing for us. But again, you know, I, I think this is a scale business because you know, you're talking about costs and fees, all this stuff, right? So um, that's really what I saw at Caddis was the most important thing to me was that we had to get big quick um, because there is a no man's land in this world that we've all lived in. And that's when, you know, the sleepless nights come into account as like, man, like we've got to pay for an audit coming up in March or April. We've got, you know, fund administrator, we've got all these third-party fees, like a securities lawyer, overviewing your, you know, operating agreement documents to your investors or your PPM or limited partner agreement. So, you know, you can just hear the cash register going all the time. And um, I, that's why I do believe this is a scale business. It helped. The scale helps in so many ways. um, Not only economically at the GP side, we don't put any GP expenses into the fund, but um, you know, it's more about our ability to go buy mobile homes whenever we see them. And, you know, that's hard to do when you've, we had a couple million bucks of mobile homes sitting in storage for a couple of years. And, you know, you can't just have 2 million bucks in fallow <laughs> income sitting out there. I mean, it's not what most people can do, but, you know, when you own a large fund, it's a pretty simple decision because that you can control your own destiny on the other end, right? So, you know, that's, a, that's the part where it's so hard to get from you know, I'm sure you guys have read the book crossing, crossing the chasm, but that's what it feels like as you start your first fund and you're like, holy cow, I don't know if I'm ever going to raise a dime to like, I got to get across the chasm as fast as possible. Cause now I'm in no man's land and I got to have three or four funds just to, to cover the nut. Great, great,
1: great insights for sure. Appreciate it. Well, maybe one, I don't, in interest of time, maybe one last question and I'll let you guys all sign off with any comments or anything like that, but um, where's the market at? Uh, are we in a Are we at a bubble? Are we at a, are the growth cycle still? I mean, consolidation, I feel like it's getting more and more present every day. Uh, I'd be interested in your guys' Your guys opinion. Obviously we've seen lots of private equity come in, lots of REITs uh, just gobbling up market share, some recent mergers, um, recent portfolio sales. I'd be interested in your guys' opinion on where we're at in the market. And, and if you've got a forecast, uh, Now's a great time to share it. I'm taking notes. Who I don't who's Jeff, you want you got to go first?
4: I wanted someone else yeah. to go first.
1: Okay.
3: <laughs> right. My answer is I have no idea. So I want to
4: hear it Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. I mean, who yeah, right. Who really knows? Um, I'm not an economist, um but I in my opinion, uh, I I don't think we're at a bubble. Um I think that you're going to continue to continue to see uh cap rate compression. Um, I think you're gonna see the, the need for affordable housing continue to grow, uh, which is again gonna, gonna help with compression. I think there's gonna be uh, fewer and fewer places to place money. I mean, as we all know, guys, there's a ton of equity on the sidelines. Um, and I think that's just gonna increase. Um, I think this. I think the stock market's at a, at a bubble. Um, I think we might see a, a good correction here at some at some time uh, in the near future. Um, but as far as affordable housing and mobile home parks, um, I still think there's a lot of growth left. Um, I think we're gonna, we're gonna start seeing some growth in new mobile home parks. Um, as you know, as we all know, there's been very few built in the past five years. I think we're gonna start seeing that change. Um, again, as the need for affordable quality housing continues to rise, um, you know, just here in our Rochester area, the upstate New York area, we know you can't build a brand new stick, stick built house for um, under $250,000, $300,000. And it, as we all know, we can we can cite a brand new a brand new home, mobile home for you know fifty to seventy thousand dollars. That's very nice and and brand new and energy star. So I still think there's a lot of room left on, on the runway for sure.
1: Thanks, Jeff. And you, by the way, you sound like an economist who's an expert in this field. So that was yeah, I appreciate. <laughs> that. I was I think you just wrote you just read my script right there. That was, that was, I don't I don't disagree with Jeff. Who who disagrees with who disagrees with him or can or can supplement that.
2: Well, I don't disagree with them. I, I agree with them a thousand percent. You know, I, I I'm a Stoic, right? So my whole principle is to control the controllables. And so when, when the pandemic hit, I flew home from a family office conference in Scottsdale on March 12th, and I, I told my head of asset management, "I want a daily stress test between here and the end of the pandemic about collections." And so when May 5th collections came in, and I went. Holy cow! We are as uh, mo- the most occupied. <laughs> we've, we've sold more homes than we've ever sold. I got an RV and I went around the country, and you guys know all that story. And I bought seven parks that would never have been open to us if I wouldn't have hustled and not let fear drive my decision making. For me, that's an important aspect of my daily existence. But that was my that was my movement during that time period. And then you overlay that with the top down perspective that that we're the lowest common denominator for affordable housing in the country. Best country in the world, period. And there's 62 million people that need our product that don't have access to it. So the more supply I can add to the market, the better off I'm going to be um, as an investor, as a community operator, as someone who can give back to their tenants by investing in the community. They've given more to me by their lift. And here's something I promised my tenants too, is I'm gonna invest in this community and your home, which is your most valuable asset on your personal balance sheet, is going to be worth more money when I get done with this community than it was when I bought it. And that's my promise to my tenant, too, because if they ever go to sell it, it's not going to move. We all know that. But they're going to sell it in place, and they're going to sell it for more than they bought it for. That's something that is going to happen. And so if you overlay that then with the bottoms-up perspective of micro markets that we all kind of love, right, those 24-hour cities where – Population growth, income growth, the dislocation on the ELI index, all those things are working for you. It's really a, a, a peace of mind that you and your investors can have and you can sleep well at night knowing that you're doing the right thing for a society and you're adding supply, but B, it's an investment that you know is going to be pretty recession resistant at the end of the day. And and I've been through a lot of stuff in this business, mobile home parks especially. And man, it just proves again and again and again that it's so resilient because of all those factors that I just mentioned. For I'll add, look, yeah,
3: sorry, oh, go, go ahead. ahead. No, no,
5: Daniel, go ahead. I was going to say, look, we're all, we're all cheerleaders for our sector. So <laughs> let, let me say something a little contrarian here, although I have to, I had to scratch my head to think of it, um, Like I believe there is massive demand for our product type and our parks will stay full. Our tenants will continue to pay rent, and NOI will continue to grow. I see a ton of runaway on rents. That's for sure. Uh, you know, in most of our markets, rent is a third of comp- of apartment rents. There's no reason it should be. Um, so I'm bullish on the asset class. That said, are we in a bubble? Heck yeah! By historical by historic standards, right? I mean, the fact that we're looking at crappy Class B parks in B-minus markets, and they're trading at four caps and sub four caps, that sounds like a bubble to me, right? But, but, but I think what it means is it's a bubble by our historic lens. But if we look forward, as people are invested in this asset class long term, I think the market will adjust. And I believe investors will start expecting single digit IRRs in this asset class. And, the, and I, I believe the market will say that it's a fair risk adjusted return when you look at how well these assets have behaved over time and will continue to behave. That, that's my view.
2: Yeah, I disagree, though, because I think you're rewarded for the hustle. And I know that you're out doing this, dude. And I know you, everybody on this call is doing it because I watch Sam do it all day. And then Jeff's, you know, Mr. New York, he owns the entire state now. <laughs> um, the fact that, you know, if you want to sit around and wait on the brokerage community to, to what I call toss a deal over the fence, right, then, A, you're going to be extremely bored. And, B, you're never going to buy anything because it's at a four cap. It, and if you're my broker today, it's the... The easiest thing I can do is list any mobile home park for a four cap and think I'm going to sell it because they probably will. There's somebody out there like likely going to buy it where we've seen a ton of success is our creativity and our ability to utilize bird dogs and others who are out there shaking the trees for us on our behalf only and, you know, hustling. I mean, we're just, we're out there doing the things that people don't want to do. We're on site 48 hours after we get a deal. And, you know, nobody else wants to do that. My wife hates me for it and I've never <laughs> see my kids, but it's where we're at in the market. So yeah, I'd love to go, I don't, I we're bubble, but we just, you know, we're seeing seven cap deals out there that are deals that we've found just because the mom and pop don't know. If you don't know, that's where the void <clears throat> is in this world right now is if you're not sophisticated, which, you know, unfortunately a lot of mom and pops aren't. And I've talking to a seller we're buying in Wisconsin from this morning, he's like, you know what I love about what you're doing is you're bringing energy to my community and you have these creative ideas that I never would have thought of and I wouldn't have been invested in because I'm mom and pop and I was living off the cash flow. So I think that's where the kind of Delta money in the middle is right now is the hustle, but then the creativity and then bringing the new homes in, which is something we're all going to struggle with for the next year, year and a half is just the, the amount, the supply of homes that we're going to find for infill
3: value add.
5: Yeah, my rebuttal, don't you think though that (laughs) probably 75% of the deal volume is those hustle deals, Um, but probably, I don't know, I guess 70% of the, the market cap or the dollar volume of deals, institutional deals that are probably less value add and trading closer to that four cap range. Oh, I think, I think really, from a, from a think dollar perspective, of the right?
2: market, you know, I think ninety yeah. percent of the market is, you know, the the broker throw a deal over the fence. I mean, we just walked from a deal that I loved. Man, I went up there before it even came out. Broker gave us a heads up. It's a broker we really work with closely, and said I'm going to give you like a heads up. You can take it off the market. Flew up to Wisconsin on a moment's notice, like literally eight hours notice, and couldn't get to the number that the seller wanted because the broker had whispered in their ear you know here's the number yeah and it sold for a million over what we rode against in wow. a tertiary town in wisconsin that that beautiful park 1990s vintage gorgeous one of the prettiest parks i've seen in a long time but i'm not going to go there um you know because i'm not going to compete against myself and the model is a model i mean i'm a data-driven guys i think we all are on this phone call like I told the broker, like flat out in an email, like we'll buy it when whoever buys it goes bankrupt because that's what's going to happen.
3: Exactly. So- yeah. Yeah. No. No. And that's that's what I was going to say, right, Is the the concern that I have, kind of to Daniel's point a little bit as well. I think you guys are both saying this, but we're seeing there's non-operational money, right, that's coming into the business chasing operational deals, right? So, so there was a portfolio that we looked. You guys might have seen it. It was in Atlanta. It was kind of some rougher markets, but hey, it's the Atlanta MSA, and we we know that MSA really well, and and we we knew these parks. In fact, yes, communities used to some of them. I called Steve Schaub, and I'm like, hey, I'm here on this park. And he's like, don't don't walk, run. He's <laughs> like, we own these. He's like, and he started telling me this story about like their guards riding uh, little little golf carts around and getting shot at and all this stuff.
4: Oh my god! And gosh. I'm
3: and I'm like. Like we underwrote the deal, and we're like, we're like, we know we need to be aggressive on this, but it just it, really, there was some upside, and we're like, we, I think our number came in at seventy, and it went for over a hundred million. Wow, I mean, we weren't even close, right? And and the and the anyway, I don't I don't want to maybe say, but but there's a lot of money coming in where they think they're buying a coupon to clip, and they're not, right? It's like All there's right. way, and so I'm I'm with you, Rat. I think that. That the bubble is when some of these people that have just been plowing money because they need yield, they need return, and then they find out, hey, you actually have to know how to run a mobile home park to do this, uh-huh. then I think those things are going to cycle back. And, and so I don't know what that means. I don't know if that means that it crashes. I, I don't really think so, right? there, there's, there's enough good operators out there that like... We're going to gonna be there ready to, to, to take those over, but um, that, that's kind of my big concern. I, I, I don't get concerned when they're buying, you know, Blackstone's buying the real nice park down in Phoenix and, and paying a three cap or whatever. I'm like, they're getting what they're paying for and, and, and they're, they're going to do fine, right, over time because they have super cheap capital. But when they're buying stuff that actually needs to be operated like workforce housing and they don't know that, um, that's going to be a problem.
1: There's a there's a lot of wisdom there in those comments. I want to tie that together because I mean, I said I agree with what Jeff said and I, and I do, but I think I agree with something all of you guys said. I mean, and Daniel said, are we at a bubble? Well, I, I think it depends on what's the definition of the bubble. I think we all agree that we're not at a bubble, meaning it's going to burst to nothing. But are we at a are we at a bubble as far as premium pricing for the risk adjusted return? And what Sam's talking about there at the Phoenix deal, that's a fair price for an a plus community that's stable. That's going to just coupon clip. But the deals you're buying, the deal in Atlanta you described, that's not going to be a coupon clipper. And there is a lot of non-operational money coming. I, mean, I sat here when COVID happened, uh, I saw pricing go through the roof. And I jokingly said to my team, I said, I'm looking to buy a can of Coke with a couple dents in it. It's worth a buck. I'm looking to buy it for 80 cents and fix it up and sell for dollar $1. one day. But there are guys that are so thirsty to get in this space, they're going to pay two bucks for a can of Coke just for the privilege of taking a sip. And I said, I'm, not, I'm just, I told my dad, the same thing just said. I said, we're not going to buy a deal for two or three years. When these guys go belly up, then we'll maybe buy it. I said, well, what am I going to do? I might as well practice law. So I said, I might as well throw a podcast. I hadn't practiced law in three years. I, said, I might, as well go, might as well throw a podcast up, see if I can get some clients while I wait for these guys to go belly up. Well, then it ended up having a sick, it ended up working both ways, I guess. And we bought seven or eight deals this year because we were able to find that unturned uh, that stone that went unturned, but stuff on stuff on the market, stuff that's call for offers, I just delete it. I'm, just, I'm not going to win the beauty pageant with guys. And I've got a client's got a 500 million dollar line of J.P. Morgan, and he's buying stuff, and I'm like, that's 20 minutes from my house. I would pay a premium for that. I'm at half, yeah. half of what you're. But yeah. but it's but, it's, yeah. but again, he is a different investor profile, different investor <clears throat> yield. He's not necessarily crazy. It's uh, you know. You may drive a half a man to our car. It's right for you. I may drive a $5,000 car. It's right for me. Right. It's what are you, what are your investment goals? What is your yield? How do you deliver those investors? How do you do those clients? And then, you know, what kind of adventure do you want? So to speak, you want the deal that's got a lot of hair on it, or do you want the deal that is is coupon clipper and you can scale that way. So um, probably no wrong answer there. Um, I think we all can agree on a lot of these, the ethos that we put into our operations um, I've really enjoyed spending this time with you guys. Does anybody have any closing comments before we jump? I've taken too much of your time. Please don't send an invoice. Uh, <laughs> but this has been fun.
3: Hey, hey for, we're worried about you sending us an invoice. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> I'll give you guys each, uh, inter- invo-
1: introductory rate here. You're, your, you're, uh, you're
3: the attorney. We don't even know how to send them, man. Come on. <laughs>
4: <laughs> uh, no, thanks a lot for it. This was great. I really enjoyed
3: it. Yeah, it was awesome.
4: Yeah, yeah, I think if pleasure. there
3: are
2: listeners out there, for, um, they'll do themselves a favor if they um, call any of the other guys on this um, webcast and, and bend their ear because they're some of the, the most important people I've ever met in this industry and they're the smartest. Um, and so, you know, do do yourself a favor, give them a call, learn about what they're doing and how they're doing it because they're great guys and people that I look up to and, and are doing wonderful things for our industry, which is most important. I can agree with more, rat. Right? Yeah. Appreciate it, guys. Thanks, Thanks guys. everybody. All right. Bye now. Thanks, everybody. Yeah. Talk to you. Cheers. You've been listening
0: to the Mobile Home Park Lawyer Podcast with Ferd Neiman. Ready to learn more? Go to www.themobilehomelawyer.com for free resources and materials to help you succeed. If you love the podcast, go to Apple Podcasts. Give us your review and subscribe today. Thank you for listening. Neither the Supreme Court of Missouri nor the Missouri Bar reviews nor approves certifying organizations or specialist designations. The choice of a lawyer is an important decision and should not be based solely upon advertisements.